As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word in spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. To the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord, it is written. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in an in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that they had been When he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, 
and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I imagine that many of you have spent the past few days, just as my family has, taking down Christmas decorations. Some of you, God bless you, took down not only your own, but also the church's as well. And if you are like me and my family, there is a sense of belief and accomplishment that accompanies having everything packed up and cleaned up after the holiday season. But I've also had a sense of sadness with how quickly the world moves on after Christmas. How quickly the excitement and joy fade. And how we are just relieved to get back to our normal routines. I think that Charles Swindle, the well-known evangelical preacher and author captured the post-Christmas mood well when he rewrote the famous Christmas poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. His version was aptly entitled, Twas the Day After Christmas. The poem goes like this. Twas the day after Christmas when all through the place there were arguments and depression. Even mom had a long face. The stockings hung empty The house was a mess, the new clothes didn't fit, and dad was under stress. The family was irritable, and the children no one could please because the instructions for the swing set were written in Chinese. (laughs) The bells no longer jingled and no carolers came around. The sink was stacked with dishes and the tree was turning brown. The stores were full of people returning things that fizzled and failed, and the shoppers were discouraged because everything they bought was now on half-price sale. Twas the day after Christmas. The spirit of joy had disappeared. The only hope on the horizon was 12 bowl games, the first day of the new year. I don't know if that resonates with you. But if you think about it, there are several weeks from the end of November through the end of December when something very strange happens. You can walk into almost any store and hear great hymns of the church being played loudly. You can see decorations that point to the coming of the Savior. You can turn on your television and watch Charlie Brown's Christmas, where the nativity story is recited from Luke's gospel and the message is loud and clear that this is what Christmas is all about. It's pretty remarkable in this post-Christian secular age. So I mourn a little the reality that so much time is spent preparing for Christmas, but then everyone is just ready to simply move on, even Christians. There's very little time spent meditating on the reality of the incarnation that God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, we have one who is fully man, but in whom the fullness of God dwells. We could spend weeks and months 
We could spend the rest of our lives thinking on this truth and allowing this mystery to lead us into deeper adoration of God, deeper love of God, deeper worship of God. But in a strange way, how quickly the world moves on mirrors our passage this morning. There are those who spent a very, very long time preparing for the coming of the Messiah, longing for his coming, learning the prophecies that he might be recognized when he finally came and when he finally appears. It goes virtually unnoticed. A few shepherds come because they are beckoned by the heavenly host of angels. And here in our passage today, a few Gentiles show up because a star has appeared. And all the while, just a few miles from where this Messiah is born, those who knew the prophecies simply go about their normal routines. Dearly beloved, let's not miss this opportunity, though, to behold with wonder the Christ. So I want to ask you to join with me this morning, even after the decorations have been put away, in continuing our meditation on the drawing near of God in Jesus Christ. Do that by way of the story of the visitation of the Magi. And I know that most of you have probably put away your wise men figurines from your nativity sets. But for those of you who know the liturgical calendar, the church calendar, you know today is actually Epiphany. Where we remember the Magi coming to pay homage to the Christ child. If you aren't familiar with what Epiphany is, be sure to take a look at the brief description at the front of your bulletin later today. Now, I know that this is a very familiar narrative. Sometimes it's hard to hear familiar stories afresh, but I want us to try to do that this morning in order to seek to understand exactly what this narrative is saying to us. We're told from the very beginning of this chapter our setting and our main characters. We find ourselves in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem sometime between the birth of Jesus and his second birthday during Herod the king's reign. This is Herod the Great, by the way. And during this time, men, described here in our English Bibles as wise men, show up asking about the birth of the king of the Jews. Now, what do we really know about these wise men? There are three of them, right? Right? Well, Matthew's gospel doesn't actually tell us how many of them there are. Tradition holds that there are three because there are three gifts presented to Jesus. And they come into town riding on camels, right? Well, we aren't told that either, although... It could be a reasonable assumption. And they're kings, right? Well, we're not actually told that either, although Scripture does tell us something of kings coming, bearing gifts, and bowing before the king of kings. We see this in Psalm 68 and 72. We also have the passage from our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 60, which states, And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Tradition even gives these kings names and declares them saints. Caspar, the king of Tarshish. 
Melchior, the king of Arabia, Balthazar, the king of Sheba. If we look at the text itself, however, we know very little about these foreigners. So in the absence of this information, we've done what we're really good at. We've romanticized the story, filling it with fantastical details like these names and backstories of these mysterious men. If our nativity scenes and Christmas cards were correct, these travelers managed to show up just in time on the night of Jesus' birth, handsomely dressed, I might add, alongside the shepherds to bow before this baby king in a manger and present them with their gifts. Notice, however, that these men do not show up to a stable, but to a house, presumably that of Mary and Joseph. So chances are it wasn't the night of Jesus' birth. The fact is, if we are sticking strictly with the text, the specifics of Matthew's gospel are not very exhaustive or romantic. For Matthew is pointing elsewhere. The detail given is quite intentional. So while we have painted these visitors from the east in a very favorable light, I don't think that this text is necessarily doing the same. We see them as wise men. This is quite an endearing term for what the Greek actually says here. The word is magoi, what we have translated as magi. This is where we get our word magician. Now think with me about what the Bible says about magicians. You might think of Simon the magician in Acts 8, or Elamus bar Jesus in Acts 13. Elamus is called a, quote, child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right by the apostle Paul. They are magoi. Needless to say, magicians were not seen in a very favorable light. Specifically, these travelers from the east were astrologers, They not only studied the movement of the stars, but they studied what they believed to be a message of the stars' movements for directing human life. In other words, they believed that there was a relationship between, a connection between what was happening with the stars and what was happening with humans on earth. Let's be clear about what these men did. They wrote and interpreted horoscopes. This is not exactly a practice that the people of God in Jesus' day or our own would find agreeable. It was superstitious at best, but really it was idolatrous. So what we have here in Matthew 2 are men who are most certainly Gentiles of a shady profession at least in the eyes of God's people, who have come from somewhere in the east following what is described as a star to Jerusalem because they have discerned that this star is associated with the birth of the king of the Jews. And we aren't told how they came about this knowledge, although there is an interesting connection with the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. Do you all remember this story? Maybe his talking donkey Balaam was a Gentile diviner, a seer, a prophet, and in the Jewish tradition, a magos, who is enlisted by the evil king of Moab, Balak, 
to curse Israel, but God does not allow this to happen. And Balaam ends up blessing Israel instead. And as a part of this, Balaam prophesies that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It could be very well that these magi are Balaam's successors who have come to witness the fulfillment of this prophecy. By the way, all of the references to Balaam in the New Testament are negative. All of this is to say that these men who show up in Jerusalem from the east inquiring about the birth of this king were outsiders. They were outsiders both in race and in profession. And so we need to understand this because think about who it is that comes to visit the baby Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it's the shepherds. Not exactly a savory crew. In Matthew's gospel, it is the Magi, both outsiders. Not the ones you would guess would be there to greet the baby king. It is then, as St. Augustine once wrote, Jesus then was manifested neither to the learned nor the righteous. For ignorance belongeth to the shepherds, impiety to the idolatrous Magi. We understand that Jesus, as Matthew will later record him saying in his gospel, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It is they who understand themselves in need of a Savior who come in all humility, bowing before Jesus as Savior and Lord who are saved. And we see this theme throughout Matthew's gospel summed up at the end in chapter 22 in the parable of the wedding banquet. Those who find themselves at this wedding banquet are the most unlikely of guests. And just as it is clear in Matthew 22, the Magi are here in Matthew 2 by God's grace. We tend to place a lot of emphasis on what they have done. We emphasize their attentiveness to the stars seeking out the sign of this prophesied king and their obedience and long, hard journey to follow the star. But Matthew's gospel taken in its entirety is pointing us in a different direction. If the Magi seek God's Christ, it is only because God's grace, prior to all human seeking but using external means, seeks the Magi. Before the Magi sought Christ, God sought the Magi. And God uses even perhaps what is their own idolatry to bring them to himself. It is significant here, by the way, that the star is not alone in leading them to Christ. Did you notice this? They get to Jerusalem and they have to rely on what? God's word. There is a very subtle but important lesson here concerning revelation. The star brings them to Jerusalem, but God's word brings them to Bethlehem. The star brings them to Jerusalem, but God's word brings them to Bethlehem. Now, the star will reappear, but only after guidance from Scripture. And Matthew has something to say to anyone who says that they are communing best with God by sitting in nature. Creation can only bring you part of the way to God. Scripture will, however, direct your quest toward its true goal. I think it's significant that the prophecy here is given by the assembled priests and scribes. Scripture is being read and interpreted in community. 
And then ultimately, God's revelation in Jesus Christ will complete the quest. The lesson for the Magi is that the uncertain stars give way and are superseded by the sure word, the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. No longer will the Magi need to look to the sky to light their path. Christ is the true light. The gospel brings illumination. And so it is with us. We put away our superstitions and we understand that God has revealed himself and his will to us through his word. And what the Magi find in Jesus is their deepest longings fulfilled. Notice their response when they get to Bethlehem and they see the star. The text says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In other words, they were overjoyed with immense joy. They felt the deepest and most profound joy they had ever experienced. And they are filled with joy because before Jesus, every expectation is fulfilled. All of their seeking, all of their longing finds its goal. Matthew's gospel is teaching us that Jesus is the king that all the world waits for. And so the only logical response before Jesus then is to fall down before him and worship him and offer him our greatest treasures. And this is precisely what the Magi do. As the Old Testament says, the nations will come and bring their gifts and worship him. Jesus. Joy of man's desiring holy wisdom, love most bright, drawn by thee, our souls aspiring soar to uncreated light. Word of God, our flesh that fashioned with the fire of life impassioned, striving still to truth unknown, soaring, dying round thy throne. And so this returns us to the fact that the Magi were drawn by God to the Christ child. It is by grace alone that they were there. As the Scots Confession recites, this our faith in the assurance of the same proceeds not from flesh and blood, that is to say, from any natural powers within us. For by nature we are so dead, so blind, and so perverse that neither can we feel when we are pricked, see the light when it shines nor assent to the will of God when it is revealed, unless the Spirit of the Lord Jesus quicken that which is dead, remove the darkness from our minds and bow our stubborn hearts to obedience of his blessed will. Without all respect of any merit proceeding from us, be it before or be it after our regeneration. Dearly beloved, the Magi represent to us What we are by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. Now, this is contrasted by what we find in Herod. Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us much of Herod, but we know a little about Herod from history. He was religiously Jewish, although by descent he was an Edomite. Politically, he was Roman. 
And although his reign as king over Judea was often seen in a positive light for what he accomplished, make no mistake, Herod was a paranoid tyrant who killed three of his own sons, among many others, in his madness to retain his crown. Caesar Augustus supposedly once said, only partly in jest, that it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Matthew hints at this. There is a reason why all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. It's because Herod's troubles will be Jerusalem's troubles. The Magi seek the Christ child to worship him. Herod wants nothing more than to murder him. We see here the range in response to Christ. Jesus poses a threat to Herod's reign, to his pride. So he sends the Magi to do his dirty work, to find the child for him. And notice here that Herod doesn't say, go and search diligently for the king. He can't bring himself to utter that word. Look for the child, he tells them. But also note another subtle detail here. Herod is referred to as the king up until verse 9. Right up until the Magi encounter the Christ child. Then Herod is no longer, he is no longer called king, but simply Herod. Did you catch that? It is a subtle way that God's word shows us that all the powerful of the world are dethroned before Jesus. There is only one true king, and earthly kings either joyfully bow before him or rage against him. We are also told that Herod in his fury does not respond well to the Magi's shifty exit, and so he instructs the murder of every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem and in that region. As I said earlier, there is nothing romantic about this narrative. It is dark, very, very dark. But it is against this backdrop that God and Jesus Christ has entered the world. Matthew's gospel is intent on us understanding that it is a world that is very ill and groaning under the weight of sin. It is into darkness that the light comes. This is indeed why Jesus came, that through the death of an innocent man, we might have life hereafter, that we might be freed from the tyranny of sin and death and evil, that we might no longer dwell in darkness. Matthew is already hinting forward at what is to come, that the darkness will grow darker before the light of life breaks forth in its fullness. Think about it. Where else? Where else in the gospel do we hear the title, King of the Jews? So just as the Magi represent what we are by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, Herod represents what we are by our sinful nature. He is who we are in Adam. Herod, a Jew having access to God's word, who even upon hearing the prophecy from Micah of the Christ child and sits only a few miles from the location of God incarnate, can't bring himself to go and pursue this prophecy. Do you see this? And I know that we hear of Herod and we are repulsed by him. He is a power-hungry murderer. But hear me when I say this. 
I am him in my sin. You are him in your sin. All of his selfish ambitions and pretensions and self-centeredness and greed and warring against God. What do you think sin does to us? And do you think that any of us, when we are dead in our sins, has the ability to respond to God's word faithfully? Do you hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips, the mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so do you think that there are any who resist God, who hate Christ and wish to destroy him, who do not end up hurting others in the end? Dearly beloved, this is us under sin. We are enemies of God and one another. And so here we have the gospel proclaimed and the varying responses in Matthew 2. We have what we are or were externally, especially us Gentiles, and internally before we came to Christ. We were aliens, outcasts. We were sinners and enemies of God. Paul sums it up for us in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is who we are in our sin, like Herod. But God, but God by grace made us alive in Jesus Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is who we are in Christ like the Magi. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have been brought near. In the end... It's not the Magi, nor is it Herod who are the focus of this passage, hence the lack of detail concerning them. It is Christ. This is about God with us. This is about God who becomes human, so human that he takes the form of a helpless baby, vulnerable to a murderous king, in order that humanity might be represented in him and redeemed all of humanity. He got 
comes to gather his people from the ends of the earth. It's about God who reigns as king and comes to bring his kingdom here. That his peace and his justice and joy might reign. And that the darkness might be overcome. The text, the text is summoning us. As the star once summoned the magi. It's asking us, how will you respond to this mystery of God drawing near in Jesus Christ? In joyful faith, obedience, worship, and offering your most prized earthly possessions because you are delighted to have found your heart's deepest longing and your greatest treasure. Or in violent Rebellion, hell-bent on living out your own ambitions. How will you respond? The Magi leave changed. They don't just go home by another way. They go home living another way. And what of Herod? He dies. And all of his ambitions follow him to the grave. And although Matthew does not record it, Herod dies a most miserable death. Look it up. The point is clear. The Magi serve as encouragement to us. No matter how far out we are, God's grace can reach us. And Herod serves as a warning to us. He serves as an example of what happens when we despise and reject God, no matter how far up we are. Jesus not only comes to bring mercy, he comes to bring God's judgment. The proud will be humbled. Dearly beloved, as we begin a new year, pray to God that he will help you to put Herod out of your heart and that with the Magi you might be wise and humble and that before the mystery of the incarnation you might find in Christ your greatest joy and offer him all that you are. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you but by the power of your spirit, your word becomes illumined for us and that we can see clearly who you are for us. Lord, give us wisdom and give us humility. Give us hearts that are joyful and ready to be obedient in the service of our King. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and let us affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.